All right. At this point, I want to invite up um, a dear friend and elder, Brian Hogel. He's going to be preaching for us today. Give him a hand. <clears throat> um, see a lot of family in the house, which is always good to see. Brian's family, to be exact. And uh, I just want to pray for him. He doesn't require too much of an introduction, but he has always been um, a humble leader. Um, many of you don't know how much he does behind the scenes, um, and I, my inclination is that he likes it that way. <laughs> um, but let's go ahead and pray for him as he, as he prepares to deliver the word. Father, we praise you for this morning. We praise you for the opportunity to sit before um, this man um, who you've shaped through his life, Lord, to follow you. Thank you for the wisdom that you've instilled with him. Um, thank you for all the things he has to say. Lord, we ask that you would allow him to be your instrument this morning. May you receive all the glory and honor, and your name be magnified. Use him, um, and bless us with his teaching, Lord. We pray these in your name. Amen. Can you all hear me? Maybe. Yep, okay. All right. Well, first, just want to say thanks to the worship team for those really moving songs. Can you have a little appreciation for the worship team? All right. I'm going to see if I can make this microphone work. Um, get myself uh, situated here. Um, good morning, MacAv, and welcome to all our guests who are visiting today and everyone who's joining us online. Uh, I'm Brian Hogle. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I've been a member at the church for about nine years now. Uh, I met my wife, Megan, at Mac, and we're coming up on our five-year anniversary this fall. We have two beautiful girls, Lucy, who is three, and Abby, who is one, turning two next month. And we're very thankful for the nursery this morning, because otherwise, Abby would be roaming the aisles, greeting you all personally. I also... Uh, just want to thank my in-laws for coming today, Steve and Don Hush, um, who made the trip from the west side of the state this morning. I'm grateful to have them here today. Um, just, <laughs> sorry, I'm a little overwhelmed by all the support that people have been showing me, so. Um, also wanted to say hi to my friends in the back, Nisha and Jen, who are visiting today. Thanks for coming. All right, get myself collected. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount today um, by looking at Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Um, as many of you probably know, this is my first time preaching, uh, delivering a sermon from up front here, and I'm more than a little bit anxious and clearly have some emotions going on, so I'll, I'll be grateful for uh, your patience and grace this morning. So let us take a look at uh, Matthew 7, 1 through 6 together, um, and then we can, we can jump in. And I think those verses will be up on the screen. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. There's a periodic tragedy that captures our attention, a child falling into a well. Some people will remember baby Jessica, who fell into a well in Midland, Texas in 1986. For those who may not be familiar, 18-month-old Jessica was playing in her aunt's backyard when she fell into an 8-inch well casing and became stuck 22 feet underground. The entire country watched as they worked to rescue her over the course of two days. Dozens of reporters arrived in Midland to cover what was happening. And the rescue played out nationally on live television as huge audiences waited anxiously to see Jessica saved. While this sort of coverage is normal by today's standards, in the mid-80s, it showed just how this event had captured the attention of the nation. I think a couple of things contribute to the way that our attention is drawn to terrible accidents like this. First, of course, is the young age of the children that become trapped. Many of us have toddlers that we're close to and care deeply about, whether a family member, neighbor, or friend. Our daughter Abby is 22 months old, just a little bit older than Jessica was when she was trapped, and the idea of this happening to her is overwhelming. The second is the urgency and difficulty of performing the rescue. In these situations, the child is usually trapped in an opening only a little bit larger than their body. So it's not simply a matter of lowering someone down to get them. And expanding the well from above would inevitably send debris down on top of the child. So in the case of Jessica, over the course of 45 hours, rescuers dug a vertical, parallel, uh, vertical shaft parallel to the well and then a cross tunnel in order to be able to reach her. The rescuers have to exercise great patience and care in order for the rescue operation not to cause harm to the child. Thankfully, baby Jessica was safely rescued. And the story became an ABC television movie in 1989 and has been referenced in popular culture in the decades since. This is a heavy but valuable analogy for us as to keep in mind as we examine our passage today. I would suggest that we are all like children who have fallen into a well, trapped in sin. As we examine this passage, I would encourage us to think, all to think about how frightening it would be to be in a situation like this, trapped and unable to free ourselves, and how we would be dependent on the mercy and care of others to be saved. Before we dive into the passage, I want to provide just a little bit of biblical context for the idea that we're all trapped in sin. First, the Bible makes clear that we are all sinful. In Romans 3.23, Paul tells us, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Psalm 14.3 says that the children of man have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Not one of us is free from sin. In the Psalms, we have repeated imagery of God as the one who frees the psalmist or his people from a trap in some cases closely connected to his role as the forgiver of sins. Psalm 25, 11 through 15 is one example, if anyone wants to take a closer look at that. And I want to look together at Psalm 103 with you, as we'll come back to that, that passage later. Psalm 103, 1 through 5, from the NIV. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit 
and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord forgives all our sins and redeems our lives from the pit. Through a little bit of research, I understand that the Hebrew word translated as pit here means a pit, especially a trap, figuratively, destruction. I imagine this pit is the pit of sin that Satan seeks to trap us in. And it is the Lord, by his mercy and grace, who redeems us. As we examine this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, it's important to remember that we are all caught in sin and that only the Lord can redeem us from that trap. As we talk today about judgment and how we approach others about sin, ask yourself how you would treat a child, a trapped child, as you think about people that you're tempted to judge. Ask yourself how you believe God treats you. So let's begin with Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This may feel a bit surprising if we think about how the church at large is perceived in our country, and perhaps for some of us as we consider our own experience in the church. Christians in general are thought by many in our society to be judgmental, self-righteous, and condescending to people who do not behave according to the Christian's values. But Christ is quite clear here, and we find many other examples to reiterate this point. James 14 is one example where James tells us that there is only one judge, God, and asks, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's look together at Romans 2, 1 through 4. Here Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Clearly, we are not meant to judge others. There seems to be no room for doubt that we are all sinful and that in the act of judging others, we call judgment on ourselves for our own sins. In Matthew 7, 2 and Romans 2, 3, we see a pattern that is repeated throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In Matthew 6, 12, he says, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, as he's telling us how to pray. Jesus further elaborates this in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, where he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And now in Matthew 7, 2, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We are expected by God to treat others as we would be treated by him. If we desire mercy and forgiveness, we must show these things to others. If we judge, we too will be judged. For we all are all sinners, and in judging others, as Paul says in Romans 2, 4, we show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience. Have you ever had your child accidentally break something they weren't supposed to be playing with and yelled at them harshly in frustration? Have you ever had a friend or neighbor or coworker say something insensitive, perhaps without realizing it, that hurt you and you secretly held a grudge 
having negative thoughts about their character? Or has your spouse ever made a mistake, maybe a mistake they've made more than once, that caused a significant inconvenience and you labeled them in a way that felt demeaning and distancing to them? As you think about people that you're tempted to judge, I again encourage you to ask yourself, how would I treat a child who is trapped? And how do I want God to treat me? Let's look now at Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Apart from the verses I referenced earlier, the Sermon on the Mount itself should have now by convicted each and every one of us of our sinfulness. Even if we display seemingly perfect behavior, as the Pharisees thought that they did, Jesus has been telling us that it is the state of our heart that really matters. And if we truly examine ourselves, we all find that we fall short. Who has been angry with a brother or sister and said an unkind word? Who has lusted after someone in their heart? Who has failed to love their enemies? Who has done good acts to gain man's approval rather than God's? Who has been at points in their life more focused on earthly things than on the kingdom of God and righteousness? Despite the fact that we're all sinful, we have a tendency to ignore our own sometimes crippling brokenness and sin and focus instead on relatively minor issues in others. Christ speaks against this hypocrisy, not saying that we should ignore the speck in our brother's eye, some sin issue with them, but that we should first address our own sinfulness so that we can truly help. Think for a minute about the sensitivity of your eye and the difficulty and delicacy of getting a small bit of something out of it. Would you want someone half-blind wheeling tweezers or even a finger to try to extract that speck? There would be real potential that they would do more harm than good. Yet this is what we do to others when we seek to quote-unquote help them with their sin issues when our own unaddressed sins distort our vision. There's a significant chance that we'll do more harm as we try to fix another person. If we truly care about righteousness, we have to first concern ourselves with our own sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones in Studies on the Sermon on the Mount says this, quote, when a man has truly seen himself, he never judges anybody else in the wrong way. All his time is taken up condemning himself and washing his hands and trying to purify himself, end quote. When we truly understand our own sinfulness before God, it produces within us the humility and poverty of spirit described in the Beatitudes. When we're honest with ourselves about our sin and brokenness, we see just how far short we fall of what Christ calls us to and our tremendous need for his mercy and grace. And when we understand our great need and dependence on God, we cannot help but be humble before God and others. At this point, when we have a proper understanding of ourselves and our dependence on God's mercy, we are ready to help another. How do we know when we're there? I think our thoughts and attitudes tell us a lot. Do I feel empathy for the other person, recognizing that we're both stuck in sin? Or do I approach them with frustration and a need to fix and correct? Do I have a sense of humility, knowing that I'm just as sinful? Or do I feel superior and want to demonstrate my own righteousness? Do I feel sadness at the effect of sin in the other person's life and a desire for health and goodness for them, 
Or do I feel anger with the person because of what they've done and a desire to hold them accountable? And going back to the question I asked at the beginning, do I approach them as I would a trapped child, the way I would want God to deal with me if I were in the other person's situation? If I can honestly answer that I feel empathy, a sense of humility, sadness, a desire for good for the other person, then my heart is likely in the right place. So what does this mean practically? Do not judge. Does it mean that we should never question others' behavior, words, or attitudes in order to avoid being judgmental? If we look across scripture, it seems clear that can't be Christ's intent here. In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul tells Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort in the ESV, and in the NIV version, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Notice his emphasis on patience. In Galatians 6.1, Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Notice here that the goal is restoration and that our approach is to be gentle. In the beginning of chapter 8 of his gospel, John tells the story of a woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees and teachers of law asked Jesus what they should do in an attempt to trap him. After repeated questioning, Jesus replies, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, after which all who were present left one at a time until only the woman and Jesus remained. Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So what do we take from these verses? Paul charges Timothy to correct, rebuke, and encourage, patiently and carefully. We who live by the Spirit are called to gently restore others who are caught in sin. And perhaps most importantly, Jesus refuses to condemn a woman caught in adultery, but commands her to leave her life of sin. Jesus' command not to judge is not a command to ignore the sins of others. Rather, he is telling us how not to approach others about sin. This requires the careful examination of our hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones does an excellent job of unpacking this in his book. To paraphrase, quote, What is the danger against which our Lord is warning us? It is a self-righteous spirit. Self is always at the back of it, and it is always a manifestation of self-righteousness, a feeling of superiority, a feeling that we are all right while others are not, a spirit that is always ready to express itself in a derogatory manner. And then, accompanying that, there is the tendency to despise others, to regard them with contempt, end quote. What does this look like practically? Jones continues, quote, If a man takes his own prejudices and puts them up as principles, he is guilty of this spirit of judgment. If we habitually express our opinion without a knowledge of all the facts, if we never take the trouble to understand the circumstances and are never ready to excuse, if we are never ready to exercise mercy. The spirit really manifests itself in the tendency to pronounce final judgment upon people as such. This means that it is not a judgment so much on what they do or believe or say as upon the persons themselves. It is a final judgment upon an individual, and what makes it so terrible is that the moment we condemn and dismiss the person, we are assuming a power that belongs to God alone and to no one else, end quote. The act of condemning another is central to what Jesus is prohibiting here. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, explains this way, quote, 
But what is it exactly that we do when we condemn someone? When we condemn, we really communicate that he or she is in some deep and just possibly irredeemable way bad. Bad as a whole and to be rejected. In our eyes, the condemned is among the discards of human life. He or she is not acceptable. We sentence that person to exclusion, end quote. This is the effect of judgment. When we approach others about sin, do we come with a heart to demean and control, to assert our own superiority? This could look like asserting that another's words or behavior mean they have a flawed character and that our own way is correct and to be followed. Do we come with a heart to express contempt? This could look like telling someone how much less we think of them as a person because of what they, they've said or done. Do we come with a heart to attack and wound? This could mean saying things that we know and want to be hurtful in order to make our point. Do we come with a heart to deny them something in order to inflict suffering? This could look like taking away something precious in order to ensure another's submission to our will. Do we come with a heart to distance or separate ourselves from them, to abandon or reject them? This could look like disengaging or treating another coldly, or it could mean seeking to isolate them physically or emotionally from others and ourselves. I would suggest that for you and I as people, these are markers of the judgment that Christ is warning against. Willard concludes, quote, anger and condemnation, like vengeance, are safely left to God. We must be beware the, of believing that it is okay for us to condemn as long as we are condemning the right things, end quote. What Willard is saying here is that condemnation is never okay, and we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that it is if we do it for the right reasons. Maybe the most challenging and probably the most valuable part of preparing the sermon for me was that it required self-reflection, as it should. What is God telling me about these verses, and how does it apply to my life? If I'm delivering the sermon but haven't stopped to examine my own life, I'm a bit like the person Christ describes in the passage, preaching with a log in my eye. When I was younger, particularly when I was in my 20s, I struggled mightily with being judgmental. That struggle was a significant part of what brought me into a relationship with God. Being judgmental made me miserable, but I was powerless to overcome it on my own. With certain people, usually people that I spent a lot of time with, whose behaviors ran contrary to my preferences, I would internally disapprove of a range of their choices and attitudes. While this rarely led to direct confrontation, it caused me to constantly think of them as flawed people, to be always looking for new evidence to reinforce my point of view, to emotionally distance myself from them and avoid communicating to them any sort of approval. It was ugly, it wasn't fair or loving or merciful to these people, and it was spiritually and emotionally corrosive for me. In coming to, my, in coming to faith in my late 20s and growing in relationship with the Lord, I did see a dramatic transformation in this part of my life. The level of this judgmental behavior in my life was dramatically reduced. Praise God. It didn't happen overnight, but it was a noticeable change in my life over time and felt as if a heavy weight was being lifted from me. And yet, sin is sneaky, deceptive, able to change forms so that it remains even after we think we've addressed it. As I read and reread this passage, prayed about it, repeatedly went through my notes, I had the uncomfortable feeling that these descriptions of judgment and condemnation of this self-righteous spirit were familiar in a very personal way in my life today. 
It doesn't look quite as it looked earlier in my life, but I recognize some of these characteristics of judgment in the way I show up in my marriage. Martin Lloyd-Jones' words were particularly convicting. I sometimes correct out of a desire to be proven right rather than in pursuit of righteousness. I sometimes take my own preferences and transform them into principles. I'm sometimes slow to excuse and show mercy when I find a particular behavior to be especially frustrating or irritating. In these asks, I center myself rather than God and am guilty of the type of judgment that Christ is warning against. So what can I do? First, I apologize to my wife for this behavior and know that I will need to apologize again as I work to surrender this to the Lord. Next, I pray to God that he will continue to transform this part of my life. And I ask you for your prayers too. And I can seek a better way to respond when I find myself tempted to judgmental behavior. Psalm 103, which I quoted earlier, is one of my favorite psalms because it's a reminder of how good God is to us. To repeat the first five verses, Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Think about this for a minute. Despite our sinfulness, despite the fact that we all fall short of the glory of God, as Paul tells us, despite the fact that not one of us does good, as Psalm 14 tells us, Still, this is the way that God treats his children. He forgives all your sins. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with love and compassion. Think about that imagery for a minute. He satisfies you with good things. This is the way our Father cares for us. As we approach others about sin, I think we can draw from this the way the Lord would have us approach them as he approaches us with forgiveness, with a desire to heal, with a heart to redeem, with love and mercy, with a desire to satisfy their needs with goodness. As we think of that scene of a child trapped in a well and of the heart and attitude we would bring to that situation, I believe that can help remind us of the heart that we should bring when we approach a brother or sister trapped in sin. We approach them with great care and concern, with mercy, with a desire to gently restore. And finally, Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I find this verse a bit difficult to understand. Who are the dogs and pigs that Christ is referring to here? And what exactly are the holy things and pearls that we aren't supposed to give them? My sense from what others have written is that this verse has been viewed and understood in many different ways. Dallas Willard presents one interpretation that, while certainly plausible, I find less convincing. Dr. Willard asserts that Jesus is speaking against efforts to correct and control others by forcing good things, holy things and pearls, upon them without listening to them and understanding their ability to take in what we are giving. Basically, he says that no one is to be excluded from our efforts to share the kingdom but we must humbly adapt to what each person is able to receive. He uses the illustration of a parent, perhaps with an air of moral superiority, pressing religious beliefs on a child to whom they make no sense, and the child rebelling in response. 
In his interpretation, this sort of approach goes hand in hand with the attitude of judgment that Christ prohibits in verses one through five. Both are forms of moral arrogance, not recognizing our own sinfulness on one hand, and not willing to adopt our approach to the needs of another person that we're engaging with on the other. While Dr. Willard was far more educated and well-studied than I am, I struggle with why Christ would use the language of dogs and pigs, which would have had strong negative connotations for the Jews of the time if he were broadly referring to people who are less spiritually mature like a child. Generally speaking, a more widely accepted way of interpreting this verse that I find more convincing is to understand dogs and pigs as the wicked or enemies of the gospel, those who will not receive wisdom to give the gift of the kingdom of heaven. If this is the case, this verse would direct us not to continue to share holy things and pearls with those who are unable to appreciate the value of what we would give them. Rather than gratefully receive wisdom, they will attack us for our efforts. This explanation makes more sense to me. To me, this verse seems to be a call to discernment. Christ's command not to judge is a call to sacrificial love for those in sin, which can be very demanding on our time and energy. I believe that Christ is warning us against overextending ourselves in service of enemies of the gospel, those described as dogs and pigs. Distinct from unbelievers, these are people who will willfully reject wisdom that is offered and take advantage of our mercy, but yet are unchanged by the love expressed for them. Rather, they would trample on our love and mercy and turn in and, and attack us. I do not believe this allows us to prejudge how we think someone might respond. We are always called to love, mercy, and forgiveness. But I do believe it is a call to discernment, consistent with the discernment required of the apostles when Jesus sent them out in Matthew 10. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. I'll close by tying our passage today back to the Beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount. When we encounter sin in others, as we do each day, and are tempted to judgment, we should remind ourselves of the character we are called to, to be poor in spirit and humble before the Lord, to mourn our own sin and that of others, to be meek and acknowledge our own brokenness and failings, to desire righteousness above all else, leaving aside selfish thoughts and attitudes, to be merciful as we desire mercy for ourselves, to be pure in heart, desiring to demonstrate God's love, to be a peacemaker, willing to give of ourselves for the good of others. As you engage with someone who tempts you to judgment, imagine how you would approach a toddler who has fallen and become trapped in a well. Imagine the child as your son or daughter, grandchild, niece or nephew, the child of a friend, a neighbor. Maybe they're wailing unceasingly out of fear. Maybe they're angry with frustration at not being able to free themselves, not really understanding the terrible situation that they're in. Would that change your desire to approach them gently, to calm, comfort, and care for them, to do whatever was necessary to raise them from the well, healthy and safe? And how much greater would our empathy and compassion be if we ourselves remembered that we've been trapped in wells of sin, redeemed from them only by the mercy and love of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for the way that you love us, the way that you care for us, the way that you're willing to forgive and heal and redeem, despite the fact that all of us are sinful. Lord, we just ask that you would 
impress this upon our hearts, Lord, this desire for us to demonstrate the mercy that you show for us, Lord, that we would love others as you love us. Lord, let your, the way that you treat us be a model. Convict us of our um, judgmental behaviors, of our tendency to overlook our own sins and focus on the sins of others. Lord, transform our hearts that we would follow the model that Christ lays out for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.